you're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Bereni-Peters. I live in a three-bedroom flat, but in actual fact, our apartment has way more residents than bedrooms. Hundreds of them. Free-riding tenants who don't contribute to the household chores. The resident German cockroaches. Not only do they not do the dishes, they don't pay rent, they invade our space, they hide in the cupboards, in the drains and in the shower. I'll wake up in the middle of the night to get a drink of water and see them scurry across the kitchen floor. We've tried everything on the internet to try and evict them from our house. Insect repellent, natural remedies, essential oils. Our house turned into one giant science experiment. But nothing worked. Then, a few months ago, when it got cold, they suddenly disappeared. Left without saying goodbye. And, for a fleeting moment, I felt almost sad to see our swarm of cockroaches go. Until I realised they'll be back in summer. Over the next three episodes, we'll be playing stories produced by audio journalism students from Melbourne Uni, responding to the theme, Swarm. In our first story, Matthew speaks with the director of science organisation CESAR about approaches to pest management and how reimagining our relationship with creepy crawlies might be the answer. I have the two copies. Most of us don't think much about insects. Oh no, there's a bee. At best, they're a nuisance. Is it gone? At worst, the stuff of nightmares. But the bugs are coming for our food, and we need to be prepared. Don't worry, it's not that kind of horror story. And anyway, bees are typically one of the good guys. But for farmers around Australia, insects really can be a nightmare. Each year, our national harvest loses almost $400 million to insect damage. Much of the solution to date has been what you can hear. Tractors pulling boom sprays, delivering powerful insecticides to crops. And we've taken pride in how effective they are. But their days are numbered. I'm Associate Professor Paul Yamana. I'm a director of a science organisation called CESAR Australia. We are largely reliant on pesticides to control a lot of insect pests, not just here in Australia, but overseas as well. In a lot of broadacre systems in particular, these pesticides are often quite broad spectrum, so they're not necessarily targeted to kill just the insect that we're focusing on. So for example, we might be putting out an insecticide spray to control an aphid, but unfortunately that, that chemical spray might also kill other insect pests that are present in that field. They might kill ladybird beetles, they might kill lacewings or other predatory bugs. But it really kills them dead. This is where farmers can be caught in a bit of an unfortunate cycle of relying more and more on pesticides because each time you use a chemical, there are less and less beneficials in that system. Chemicals can leach into the soils where they can disrupt soil biology. Some chemicals, of course, are known to leach into waterways where they can impact local aquatic fauna as well. 
chemicals that were once upon a time very effective at controlling a particular species or a particular population, those chemicals are no longer effective. So it is often meaning farmers need to put out multiple chemical applications, they need to use more expensive chemicals, and often it means that economic yield loss has already occurred by this point. So some of the systems are are already breaking down very much for farmers anyway. Right here on ABC Classic. So basically integrated pest management is, I guess, a model whereby we don't just rely on chemicals to control insect pests, but we're taking, as the name suggests, of course, a more integrated approach. So we're using, for example, biological controls. And so those biological controls are predators, uh, parasitoids or naturally occurring fungi and pathogens that will naturally suppress or control pest populations. Things like ladybird beetles, uh, lacewings as a whole range of beneficial insects, for example, that are very effective at controlling insect pests. And IPM doesn't necessarily mean no chemicals, um, but I guess what it means, in, in my view, is that chemicals are not the first thing that we grab off the shelf. The first pillar of research in, in AgPIP that we're particularly excited about is the use of endosymbionts. So endosymbionts are secondary bacteria that live in a whole range of insects and they provide pretty important functions. So we're looking, for example, in the first instance at aphids. Often we're concerned about aphids and farmers are very concerned about aphids because they spread a number of different plant viruses. And these viruses can be very catastrophic to particular crops. And so we're looking at ways of being able to manipulate these endosymbionts that are already living within these uh, aphid hosts to essentially block them from transmitting these viruses. I think Australian farmers are incredibly innovative and incredibly proactive and are very open to new ideas. What really excites me the most is how we can truly achieve biodiversity outcomes, but at the same time continue to produce very high value food and commodities here in Australia. That story was produced by Matthew Hall. Oli Krusek was the supervising producer. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Brony-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pay you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Yu looks at how the arrival of European fast fashion brand Brandy Melville has negatively impacted young women in China. Although it's not summer in China, a swarm of young women are wearing crop tops, short cleaning skirts to show off their slim waist and long legs. They call themselves BM girls. BM is short for Brandy Melville, an Italian clothing brand targeting teenager girls and young women. 
BM clothes is characterized by short, small, and bare. It also has a controversial strategy of one size fits all. Now, this style is sweeping through China. Many people try to go on extreme diet to have good figures so that they can become BM girls. Here may come many questions. Why BM clothes can hit big in China? What these young girls have suffered in order to wear these clothes? Not everyone can easily become a BM girl. There is a widely spread graph on Weibo named BM Girls Ideal Weight Chart. According to this chart, a 160 cm BM girl should weigh no more than 43 kilograms. Yu Xuanhe, a 21-year-old college student in China, shares her story with BM clothes. I'm a huge fan of Blackpink. Jenny has a great sense of fashion, and she loves wearing branded male lift. I can wear the same clothes as my idol. I use app to keep track my daily calorie intake. I limited it about 1,000 calories per day. I often drink milk and eat an egg in the morning and eat lunch at the student canteen, but I would be careful to eat less rice, probably less than a fistful, and I eat salad at night. Yu Xuanhe is 163 cm tall and 48 kg weight. After calculation, her basal metabolic rate is around 1,200 calories, and even she has no exercise, she still needs about 1,500 calories a day. I used to think BM style is quite suitable for me when I walk down the street wearing my BM clothes. People just will turn around and look at me more. I used to like to share my daily outfits on my Weibo account. There is no doubt that Chinese social media has accelerated the prevalence of BM clothes. I have followed a fashion blogger from Bilibili website. She overshares some clothing brands, including BM, so I know it from her. This is Luli, a 24-year-old woman. She doesn't go on an extreme diet, but she keeps in shape by exercising intensely on a daily basis. I exercise regularly every day for two hours. When I see people who share their BM outfits have better figure than me, I will feel very nervous. After BM clothes hitting big in China, more doubt has been raised. Are these clothes really suitable for young women in China? Should people criticize this girl's crazy behavior of keeping in shape? Or is their right to chase this beauty trend? Visiting its official website, you will be surprised to find that the bust size of a crop top is 14 inches and the waist size of a denim skirt is 24 inches. So some Chinese criticize the prevalence of BM has something to do with Chinese traditional aesthetic of pale, young, and thin. But beauty should be defined in diverse. But as for those who benefit from BM style, think that they just chase the beauty trend and they are willing to pay the price. Chen Yuma is studying post-feminism in the University of Sydney. She has some thoughts on BM girls. Some people believe that women's judgmental self-objectification is caused by Chinese males' preference for such women in terms of sex, from male gays. So, entering a post-feminist media culture, some people who use liberalism to emphasize that 
this aesthetic is their freedom of choice. Clothes only is not a problem. The issue may be about how they show these clothes, or how they judge those girls cannot wear such small size. The sudden popularity of BM style in China is a complex phenomenon. It shows Chinese young girls willing to pursue beauty, but this fashion trend of being extreme skinny causes many criticism. How to define female body in a diverse way? How to respect female rights to pursue beauty? Are still problems in China. That story was produced by Yu Zhang. The supervising producer was Eugenia Zubchenko. In our next story, Nima explores the effects of rural to urban migration in Bhutan, and how this shift in demographic has impacted on culture and heritage. In the summer of 2015, my cousin and I decided to embark on a long journey from the capital Thimphu to Bumtang in the central parts of Bhutan. We wanted to meet Meme, our grandfather, and participate in the annual Numalong Techu Festival. Bhutan is a tiny mountainous country, topographically divided rather fiercely by rivers that can't easily be crossed and steep valleys that are difficult to navigate. Our journey was strenuously long. It took 14 hours of traversing through bumpy hairpinned roads to cover a mere 130 kilometers. Such geographical extremities have historically kept people isolated from each other. With the development of new urban settlements in the last 60 years, people have abandoned their rural homes and swarmed urban cities. This rural-urban migration is affecting the country's age-old culture and traditions. One such festival is Bumtang's famous Shinkarabne. Lam Nidup, who is the lineage holder and the head monk of Shinkar Monastery. Says that the festival attracts a large crowd of people from both rural and urban parts of the country. The famous or the unique thing about Shinkar Chechu are the dances of Hamo and Gumbo, and then、uh, the yak dance, and then the dance of the protected deity Rahula. People wear their best kiras and goes, the national dress, and adorn themselves with special gems during these festive days. The monks wear their yellow chegos on top of the classic maroon robes, and they put on special red triangular ceremonial hats embroidered with silk. It's really such a vibrant affair with crowds of people in an otherwise sparse setting. The Bhutanese scholar Dr. Karma Punso believes that these festivals are the fundamental elements of cultural cohesion and community solidarity. Without these cultural gatherings where people swarm together. You won't have these platforms or these、uh, methods and means through which to transmit the values, principles, knowledge, skills, and cultures. Like you would find some、uh, on the streets of Melbourne, a pub to go after a long day's work. There's no such thing、uh, like that in the village. The population and housing census of Bhutan, 2017, reported that 21.7 percent of people migrated to urban hubs in the course of their lives. Leaving agricultural lands fallow and houses back in the villages empty. The demographic shift is definitely having a serious impact, negative impact on the festival and the、uh, cultural events that happen in the rural heartlands of Bhutan.
I know quite a lot of villages where there are many empty households. Lam Nidup says his village community has a social media group where they keep in touch with each other year long. Last year, I was just telling the community, make sure that you save all your holidays so that you can take leave for Shinatsechu. As scores of young people swarm urban cities, the cultural void continues to swallow the rural areas. What can we expect in the future? I'm not optimistic, I would say, but I'm also not pessimistic. I'm at the crossroads, at a juncture where I'm not really able to say where this is going to go. And I think a lot will depend on how, uh, say, people of your generation, people who are also at the crossroads will react. Civilizations go through phases and we have gone through our phase of falling uh, romantically in love with the globalized Western or outside culture. I think a lot of young people may also get disillusioned with this uh, romantic idea they have of the urban life. And that would, I hope, drive some of them back. Maybe we'll reach a point when urban dwellings will no longer be the most attractive future that young people seek. Maybe, as Dr. Karma says, we'll begin to fall out of love with our concrete cities. Ever since that summer of 2015, I haven't gone back to see my meme or the techu. I can't speak the language he speaks in the village, and if I was asked to organize the festival, I wouldn't know where to start. All the way in Melbourne, the distance from home doesn't just seem physical. As urban cities get crowded, the growing absence of people can be acutely felt in the emptying rural villages. Perhaps it's not just a loss of numbers. We're also saying goodbye to a part of our heritage so deeply rooted in these cultural heartlands. That story was produced by Nima Lamo Wangchuk. The supervising producer was Oli Krusek. In our next story, Harry unpacks common misconceptions about Australia's beloved marsupial speaking with motorists about their run-ins with ruse on the road. So I feel like I'm an elementary school teacher and immediately as kids think and as we've been growing up thinking about kangaroos, immediately we think of Australia and I think for Canadians it's like that novelty of what like Australia is and those first associations that we make with countries that are so far away. Foreigners like Tori Van Stabben see kangaroos as Australia's beloved national animal. But for decades, kangaroos have been considered a pest in Australia, and their swelling population is making the roads riskier. For Sydney cider Andy Illidge, driving at dusk with her boyfriend on a country road turned into a bumpier ride than she had expected. We like, saw in the distance a kangaroo hop across the road, and we were going probably like 80, so we slowed down to, I'm going to say, 50-ish. Um, and then we like didn't see it again, it wasn't by the road, and basically as we went past that spot that we saw it, it jumped like into my car, like not in front of us, like almost on top of my bonnet, broke my side mirror and then hopped away. While dusk is peak hour for kangaroo traffic, Simone Haywood learnt that dawn is just as dangerous while driving from Melbourne to Sydney early in the morning with her husband and two young kids aged three and seven. I was just driving, it's like a dual highway. There was literally no one else on the road, no one, I couldn't see anyone in front or anything. And 
I was driving and just came out of the corner of my eye on my right-hand side. This probably a medium-sized kangaroo just hopped straight in front of us, like literally right and smashed the front half of our car. I just screamed. I literally was like, you know, swore out loud because it, it probably I saw it bounce and then it took its second bounce and hit us mid-air. So there was literally no warning and we were right doing 110. Um, but it sort of just hit our car, rolled, and then just kept jumping. Like it almost like it didn't affect the kangaroo in any way. There are many stories of kangaroos hopping off scot-free as Transport Victoria reports only one in five kangaroo-related accidents result in the animal's death. But Cohen Johnston was not so lucky. With only a week to move from Townsville to Melbourne after getting a scholarship for his pilot's licence, Cohen was eager to make the 27-hour trip down the middle of Australia as fast as possible. I was driving like 14-hour days and so I'd start when it was dark and finish when it was dark. And um, I stopped at a town called uh, St George and I had a drink and I stretched my legs and I thought, oh, I'll just go to the next, I'll just get to the next town before I stop for the night. And uh, I kept going and that was a bad idea because it was just kangaroos everywhere. And I'd slowed down to the point where I was doing about 70 or 80 on the highway and I'm thinking, I'll do, you know, with that bit of extra caution, I'd be fine. And um, sure enough, uh, one large uh, grey kangaroo just was must have been going full tilt um, to make a perfect intersection with my car, and I couldn't see because it was um, dark and there was scrub on each side of the road. So all I saw, I was just driving along, and all I saw, I actually dipped my headlights for the car coming the opposite direction. And as soon as that other car passed, I went to go full uh, high beams again. Uh, the kangaroo jumped in on my left, front left headlight, and it, I hit it right as it was um, at the low point of its bound. They're a 80-odd kilo ball of meat um, that's quite low, and uh, it went in to my car just underneath the headlight and completely um, ripped the whole bumper off the car, needless to say, um, poor old Skippy wasn't much left to him. In 2019, Amy Insurance revealed kangaroos caused 83% of all wildlife road accidents in Australia. Kangaroos are swarming the roads more and more, with the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning estimating Victoria's current kangaroo population to be at roughly 2 million, up by 40% in the last three years. International travellers like Tori may not be bouncing up and down to get onto our roads after learning of the kangaroo menace. A lot of Canadians or, you know, people from North America are already terrified of the many snakes and spiders that you guys have over there. In our minds, just so bizarre that to have a kangaroo just jump in front of your car, you know, I don't, we don't really think of it anywhere close to, to people and where people live. That story was produced by Harry Sekulich. The supervising producer was Mel Chun. I once stopped into a cafe while camping with my family. We were super hungry and really keen for a feed. But the minute we stepped in the door, something felt strange. 
Everyone stopped what they were doing and stared at us silently. Suddenly, I wasn't so hungry anymore. I later found out that that cafe was run by a cult. Now, this is my only experience with a cult, and it was pretty strange. But in our next story, Julie's mother and aunt reflect on the time when her uncle became the leader of a cult, which wasn't just strange, but deeply disturbing. Cults have long fascinated audiences worldwide. A charismatic leader, a willing following, and often manipulation. In the early 2000s, in the small Pacific country of the Solomon Islands, my uncle was the leader of one. I remember them walking up the hills in the mountains, lots of followers, and we'd be standing there watching them, going up the hill and light a big bonfire and kill chickens or frogs or anything. They kill them and sacrifice them and eat and drink the blood. But I used to run away because I was so scared. I thought he might come back and start do it to human beings. That's my mom, my uncle's sister. She was only in her early 20s when the cult started. The political disrest at the time around land rights saw a loss of respect for a corrupt government. An upheaval that saw New Zealand send military assistance in an operation titled Ramsey. In the turmoil, my uncle's cult flourished. My mom tells me how it all began. I never seen him, like when I grew up, he never come out of the house. He always like studying and blah, blah, blah. But I heard when he went to this um, secondary school, they said they saw him, he started killing animals to drink the blood. But then when he finished from that secondary school, he went overseas in New Zealand. On scholarship to study theology to become a Christian pastor, Henry left for New Zealand, but came back during his studies. He's very handsome and very clever. Very clever. But because of his cleverness, like he's too board probably. I think that's when he started the cult. He just want to start this church with all these young followers, like he's got about a thousand of followers. One of my aunties, who was in the islands at the time, told me that though my uncle believed in God, his new religion revolved around one thing. A man's penis. No, the penis of a man. So he take this group of young boys, he tell them, you know, so and so and so, and he in some theory, like he said, we know God is the creator from the beginning, but with human beings now, this is the creator. Carving penises from wood, my uncle recruited young, restless men with a religion that intertwined old biblical theory. They put the penis on the, on the hill and, uh, you know, he's got his old boys to look after the penis and every now and then they would go up this hill and pray for this penis. But you have to, you have to drink the blood you know, like in the old days in the Bible, you have to kill a sheep or something to pray to God, right? With his cart, he said he killed some of the, you know, chooks that running around in the village. Tell the boys to kill the chooks to and drink the blood, so so that will make them sort of spiritually related to the penis. They will walk around this penis his calf penis and then touch it and say, only you, only you. Oh, it's scary. Because they call it only you. The church called only you. One state ahead, they said they naked 
and running around the bonfire, the fire. When he, when they come down, oh, they look so scary. They, their eyes are red. And we used to hide in my uncle's house and look through the window. After a year, backlash from the community and a visit from the police forced him to stop. How did it finish? Because all the churches were against it. And even his dad doesn't like it, you know. People start to create like being enemy with him because how come you're doing this and you're born from a Christian church? How come you're doing this, you know? And even the relatives and the, the family, you know, they're all scared of him. When I asked my auntie why the cult worked so well, she said it was mostly due to his education. Then again, it confused him because he's a very smart man, you know. He's educated, he's back from uni, so they reckon that, oh, there, there could be a philosophy that he must be got something from the Bible, he just sent it into one. And the boy said, well, this is it. We human, we born from this thing, the penis. And where is Henry now? He become a pastor. He become another leader for the church, but in another island in Western province. That story was produced by Julie May Fenwick. The supervising producer was Danny Stewart. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands, and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Emma Pham is our social media producer, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.